0: amazed and in awe of you. You're a great and an awesome God. Lord, that word amazed and awe gets thrown around a lot, but Lord, only you are awesome and only you are amazing. Lord, we pray right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go and grab a seat. God bless you guys. Good to have you here. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you're going to need one. Amen. Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. For the movie. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you one. All right. As, as I say every week, if you want to take that Bible home, it's for people over here. If you want to take that Bible home, feel free. We want you to be able to read the Word throughout the week. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. On Wednesday nights, this coming Wednesday, we'll be in Deuteronomy 21. Encourage you to pray about coming out for that. This morning we're in 2 Corinthians 5, and by way of quick review, Paul wrote the first letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was the most wicked city on the planet. It was the sin city of the day. It was filled with sexual immorality. It was filled with idol worship. It was filled with paganism. It was filled with chasing after the vain Greek philosophers of the day. And because of that, the church became very lukewarm and started to become like the world. What does that sound like? It sounds like the United States. And so often we are conforming more to the world than having an impact on it. So Paul wrote the first letter of Corinthians to the church in Corinth, exhorting them to get their eyes off of the world and get their eyes back on God. So stop, to stop treating each other the way the world treats each other and start treating each other the way that God had ordained. To so stop being involved in sexual immorality and idol worship and all those things, and get their eyes back on the Lord. A great exhortation for the church today as well. Amen? Amen? That was weak. Amen. There we go. All right. You guys are awake. I know it's an hour earlier, but you guys can still be okay, all right? All right. So we come to 2 Corinthians. At the end of 1 Corinthians, what happened was that many of the people did respond and when they responded, they responded with repentance, and they got right with the Lord, but yet there was still a group in Corinth that responded in the exact opposite way. They challenged Paul's authority. They said, how dare you? Who do you think you are telling us how to live our lives? And again, that happens still today. People read the Bible, and if maybe they don't like the way that it cramps their, quote, lifestyle, they start saying, well, maybe the Bible's wrong. Well, guess what? If you think the Bible's wrong, you're wrong. Amen? Amen. The Word of God is always right. The Word of God is perfect. Sixty-six books, forty authors, three continents, three languages, fifteen hundred years, one central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. And so God's Word is perfect. So I want to encourage you that we should not fall into the same trap as the people in Corinth to downplay the Word of God. And so in the second Corinthians, in this part, he was portraying his apostleship, who he really is. In a sense, he was defending himself. And in so doing, he relayed all the trials he had been through. And, w- and if any of you ever read the Bible, ever studied, or ever been here before, you know Paul went through more trials than probably any other Christian in the history of all mankind. We want his testimony, but we don't want his tests, right? Without a test, there can be no testimony. We want to have, you know, the testimony of Paul. We want to impact the world like Paul, but don't let me go through any of that stuff like Paul, right? But it's through trials that we grow. It's through trials that our lives are transformed. And so Paul's been writing this letter to them. And I don't have time to go through all of the previous chapters, but I want to encourage you to grab the tapes. If you're going through trials right now, first four chapters, great stuff on how to live life for God in the midst of trials. Now as we come to chapter 5 this morning, we're going to look at the power of redemption. What God can do in the life of any person who will turn their life over to Him. The way He ended the last chapter, He said, our light afflictions. Now what I love about that is, if you guys have been here, His light afflictions included things like, Stonings, beatings, scourgings, mockings everywhere he went, riots. You know, Paul was the kind of guy that everywhere he went, he either started a riot or a revival. And sometimes both. But yet, how, does, how in the world does he have the ability to refer to these things as light? Of, if someone throws rocks at me until I'm dead, that's not a light affliction. Amen? If someone beats me with 40 lashes minus one on five different occasions, that's not a light affliction. Sometimes we look and think, oh, he says, oh, my light affliction. Well, that must mean he doesn't have stuff as bad as me. Well, I'll tell you what, he's got it worse than all of us, amen? But why is it light affliction? Because he had such an eternal focus. Because he understood the power of Almighty God. He understood where he was headed and where he was going to spend eternity. So this morning, we're going to see how the power of redemption impacts both our lives here and now, as well as how we will spend eternity. If you're a note taker, as many of you are, these are the points for this morning's message and the power of redemption. We're going to see a heavenly perspective. Again, a longing for heaven. No fear of death. As we've talked about, Christians die well. A heavenly priority. A desire to live a life pleasing to God. A heavenly passion. Love for Christ that compels us to reach out to the world around us. We're going to spend a, 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 quite a bit of time on the fourth point, which is a heavenly transformation. Transformation that we are new creations in Christ. And then lastly, the last verse of this chapter tells us that all of this requires a heavenly sacrifice. And that's why Jesus came. So let's begin looking at the power of redemption, a heavenly perspective, beginning in verse 1. It says, therefore, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we know, and I love that, And that's a term that Paul often uses in Peter and other other biblical writers, because we don't hope, we don't think, we don't wish, we know. Amen? I know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I'm ha-ha, heaven bound, as DC Talk would say. Amen? I'm going to heaven, not because of my good works, but because of His great work upon the cross of Calvary. I'm going to heaven because of what He has done for me. And he says, for we know. We know. And because of that, Paul... in the midst of all these trials, can view them as light afflictions because he knows. Now, is the world wandering around today trying to figure out the answer for life? Trying to figure out, well, I hope. You ever meet anybody, you go into heaven, I hope so. They don't know my God if they say, I hope so. Amen? Because we know. Because our God is faithful. Because he's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. We know, not we think, not we hope. Having been redeemed, Paul knew what awaited him at the end of this life. Christians need to have a proper outlook on death because we have an improper outlook on death. You hear things like this. Most of you know I did a funeral a couple weeks ago for a guy in my youth group in San Jose. who was 30 years old. And people repeatedly said how tragic it is that he died at the age of 30. How tragic. Until you watched his testimony on video and he said how wondrous how great it is, because the Bible, as we're going to see in the text today, says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and Paul understood, and, and that's why he had joy in these, quote, light afflictions, he knew where he was headed, he was going to heaven, and you know what, the worst thing the world can do to me is the best thing that could happen to me, amen, and they shoot me and kill me, I'm in the presence of Almighty God, you can't threaten me with heaven, and Paul understood that, and he said, for we know, it's light affliction, why, because we know where we're headed, And again, we need not feel sorry for those, as we're going to see, who move out of a tent and into a mansion. Look what it says there. Our earthly houses, this tent. What did Paul do for a living? He made tents. He knew a little bit about them, right? And what were tents? Tents, well, unless, maybe in Santa Cruz, with the way real estate prices are, that they may be permanent dwellings soon, right? But tents typically are temporary dwellings, and You know, we set them up and things, but we don't invest everything into a tent because we know it's temporary. Can you imagine if a guy spent 50 years working at a job, and then when he was finally, you know, got his retirement, he put his whole 401k into a tent? Everybody'd say, dude, you're out of your mind, right? Why? Because it's temporary. And Paul says, you know what? For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. You know what? When this temporal body tainted by sin, aging, decaying, dying. If you didn't know that, by the way, that's why you got to put deodorant on every day. Did you know that? You start dying when you're born. Did you know that? I mean, you're, you know, it's just wrong, right? My hair falls out. That's what happens. You get older and you just don't, you look at pictures of yourself 20 years ago and you go, that's just wrong. But I want you to know that we're all dying. We're all passing away. But for Christians, praise God. Because we know where we're headed, and if this earthly body passes away, I'm only graduating to something so much greater. So praise God. And as Christians, we should die well. As Christians, we should have peace in the midst of the greatest trial. As Christians, we should see them all as light afflictions with the realization of what is coming next. Again, Paul knew about tents. He knew they were temporary. But he says, "...a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens." You know what? This house is temporary, the one I'm living in. But the one that God is preparing for me in heaven is eternal. It's not going to decay. It's not going to fall apart. It's going to last forever. Not made with hands like the temporary dwellings that men made, but made by Almighty God. Je- Jesus said this in John 14:2. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. How long is Jesus, when did Jesus ascend into heaven? Almost 2,000 years ago. That means he's been working on your house for 2,000 years. That thing's going to be sweet. <laughs> Amen? Imagine, if you've got the best craftsman in the world to work on a house for 2,000 years, but imagine Almighty God doing that. Now, if, you, if I get hit by a bus, or the Lord tarries and I die, and you read the paper one day that, you know, Pastor Dave Johnston of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz died, don't believe it. Bad reporting. It's a lie. Because you know what? Christians don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? We just move. I'm not going to die. There is no death. Death has no sting anymore. Because the truth is that when I die, I'm leaving behind this decrepit, balding tent to go for a perfect, eternal body in heaven. And you know what? Doesn't that change the perspective on everything when our minds are focused on God? Amen? doesn't matter. Oh, I lost my... That's okay. God's in control. Lost my job. That's fine. Going through this difficulty, it's okay. But light affliction in light of eternity. But light affliction in light of who Almighty God is. Don't weep for me because I've left a decrepit tent for a glorious mansion. And Paul was ready to die for Christ because he had a proper outlook on death. All the world's trials and perils, again, were but light affliction. Verse 2. For in this, we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. We groan while in these bodies. These bodies are subject to pain, aren't they? It's amazing. You know what? It's funny. I used to play football in college. Now I walk up two flights of stairs and my calves hurt. That's just wrong. I'm thinking my decaying body. I'm breathing hard. I walked up two flights of stairs. I'm 40. That's just wrong. i got to get back in shape, right? And at the same time, though, that's this decaying body. And praise God, we're never going to be tired in heaven. We're not going to have a decaying body in heaven. In these earthly bodies, we groan. And we groan because there's a desire to be in heaven. I want to say this, and I think this is something that happens throughout the church today. and, And we all need to examine our own hearts, Sometimes we're so satisfied with living here that our minds aren't on heaven enough. We get comfortable here. We're happy here. Again, we should live our lives for God. We should be the most joyous people on the planet, but this is not my home. This is not where I'm going to spend eternity. I'm going to be dead a lot longer than I'm alive. Amen? And where I spend eternity is what matters, and that's where my focus needs to be, and that's where my passion needs to be, and that's where my heart needs to be. And Paul understood, he said, we groan because we desire to leave this stinking tent behind and go into the presence of Almighty God, where we can be around the throne forevermore and see Him face to face and worship Him. Praise God. And Paul understood that. We groan because we want to leave this decaying body behind. Clothed, and it says in that verse, clothed with our habitation. Now, that, I believe, again, I mean is a new heavenly body. Now, I don't know for sure, and and you know what? It doesn't really matter because when we get to heaven, we'll find out. But a lot of times when you read the word mansion, it talks about us being clothed in it. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to heaven. You're going to be at the pearly gates, quote, right? And they're going to say, okay, uh, all right, Dave, all right, let me show you. Okay, you go down Glory Lane and turn right on Hallelujah Avenue, and the third mansion on the left, that's yours, right? And sometimes we think of heaven that way. But I believe it says here we're going to be clothed with the habitation because I'm not going to need a house. Why would I go home? You don't sleep in heaven, right? You don't have to cook. It's all going to be handled, right? I'm going to be one to hang out wherever God's at. I don't want to go home from that. Amen. So I have an idea that the mansion is, or that habitation is, the body He's going to give us that is perfect. But if it's a mansion, I'm sure it will be sweet, amen? So whatever God wants to do, that works for me. I put it in His hands, not mine. I don't tell God what to do. I just show up and say, thank you, amen? Amen. And praise the Lord. I don't deserve to be here, right? Look at verse 3 and 4. For if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. This proves, yet again, that when we die, we don't go off into some bodiless atmosphere. Buddha was wrong. Amen? In so many ways, right? But he was wrong to say, oh, you know, it's that higher level of consciousness, to getting to the place where you reach nirvana and you're, a, you're, a, you know, you're at the place of being a snuffed out candle. What does that mean, right? That's the biggest bunch of noise I've ever heard. Buddha's dead, by the way, amen? Jesus Christ, risen and living Savior, amen? That's who we follow, that's who we serve. And so it's, we're not going to become an essence. We're not going to just float off bodiless into the sky somewhere. What does it say in these verses? It says we're not going to be found naked. But what is going to happen instead, we're going to be further clothed. We're going to be clothed in a greater way, in a more powerful way, that immortality or mortality may be swallowed up by life, that we'll no longer be living in dead bodies, but now we'll be walking around again, transformed into the very image of the Son of God. Again, we should be longing for heaven. We should have no fear of death because... What's there is so much greater than what we think. You know what, guys? Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, is that it? Is that all? Right? It's going to be way more awesome than we think. And God is way more awesome than we think. And He's way more powerful than we think. And I can't wait to see my Savior face to face. How about you? But until then, may I be found faithful serving Him with my whole heart. Those who do not long for heaven again are too comfortable on earth. So how do I know that this promise of heaven applies to me? How do I know that I'm someone who's going to heaven? Look at verse 5. Now, He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God has given us a down payment on heaven. What is the down payment on heaven? Who? It's the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians, right, that we've been given that down payment, that heavenly guarantee, so the reason I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven... ...when I was born again, the Holy Spirit went from being with me... ...the world calls them their conscience, to being in me. And now I am a new creation in Christ, as we're going to see. And I've been born again, and I'm filled with the Spirit of the living God... ...and He walks with me, and He never leaves me nor forsakes me... ...and it's a down payment on heaven. The word there for guarantee or down payment is the word like earnest money. When you were promising to do something, you would give a little something... ...to let people know you were serious... God is serious about taking you to heaven and he's proven it by giving you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you right now. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. I'm not alone. You're never alone. God has shown us his intentions by giving us the Spirit. Both as a down payment on our heavenly promise and also to comfort us here and now. Verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body... We are absent from the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? We're confident that the presence of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, again, gave him this great confidence to know that while he was living here on earth, he was absent from the physical presence of Almighty God. Now, is God here right now? Absolutely. He lives inside of us in the personal Holy Spirit. He's here in our midst. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But we don't see him as we will when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we'll leave this flesh behind. We'll leave the things that separate us from God in this earthly tent. We'll be able to behold all of His glory. And He says, as long as I'm in this tent, I can't fully behold His glory. And that should, again, give us a greater anticipation and a greater passion to one day be in the presence of Almighty God. As long as we're in this temporary tent, we're absent from His glorious, immediate glorious presence. Verse 7, for we walk by faith not by sight. The Bible says that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our faith should impact the way we walk. We walk by faith. Not just we do something, we just live by faith. Everything we do is by faith. That's the way it ought to be as Christians. Sometimes people say, you know what, I struggle having any faith and it's just really hard for me to step out. And then God just brings you to the place where you have to amen, because he loves you enough, I know people who say, you've heard me say it, Christ is Christianity, the only time they pray is when things are tough, so all of a sudden they got a lot of tough trials, I'm like, God missed you, right, you know, you haven't come coming before his throne, you haven't sought him, we walk by faith, we live by faith, not based on what we've seen, but the evidence of what is not seen, the evidence of a transformed life, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Not by appearance, not by sight, not governed by what we see, not governed by our circumstances, but by faith in the Lord and in His Word. Verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you you underline anything in your Bible, underline that verse. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which means I'm going to close my eyes on earth and I'm going to open them up in heaven. It's going to be a blink, boom, and I'm in the presence of Almighty God. Now this wipes out a couple of false doctrines that are out there today. One is soul sleep. You ever heard this? You die, you lay in there asleep till the resurrection. Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus hanging on the cross, turned to the thief. What did he say to him? Today you will be not, you're going to go to sleep now. And in a few thousand years, you're going to wake up and you'll be with me in paradise. That's not what he said. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So that means that every believer that has died, having known God, is in heaven right now around his throne. Amen? And you know what? I'm envious. I want to be there. But I want to be faithful until I get there. It also dispels the myth of purgatory. Purgatory. Again, Catholic in nature, which teaches that, okay, after you die, you got to go suffer to pay penance for your sin. Wait a minute. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words, die, which means it is finished. He didn't say there's a good start. He didn't say, okay, well, that plus purgatory, and maybe you'll get in. That's not what he said. He said it is finished. And so there's no purgatory, and there's no, you know, don't be going and paying a priest a bunch of money to pray your relatives into heaven. If they're not in heaven when they die, it's too late. Amen? You need to pray for them now. You need to reach out to them now. There is no purgatory. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. What a glorious promise. Amen? We should be encouraged by that. We should be strengthened in our walk to know that we will be present with the Lord. I'm just blown away. I can't even imagine The power of redemption gives us a heavenly perspective, longing for heaven, no fear of death, and the ability one day to be in His presence because our sins are forgiven. Now, not only does the power of redemption, being purchased back, having a ransom paid for us that restores us to a right relationship with God, not only does it give us a heavenly perspective, but it gives us a heavenly priority. Look at verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Having been redeemed, having our sins paid for, having having them been forgiven, only through repentance, only through brokenness over our sin, only when we realize it's only through the shed blood of Christ that we can be saved, and we turn to Him in desperation, and we ask Him to forgive us. When that happens, we have the promise of heaven, and then it should transform the way that we live. Because it says here, that it gives us a heavenly priority, and how does it do that? It makes our desire to to live a life well-pleasing to Him. When you get up in the morning, are you thinking about living a life well-pleasing to you or well-pleasing to Him? Do you get up and arrange your day to be well-pleasing to you or well-pleasing to Him? Are you waking up and feeding your flesh first or opening up God's Word and feeding your spirit first? Live lives well-pleasing to the Lord. You'll never regret it. Amen? You'll never regret it. Never. It's such a blessing. It's such a privilege. Paul would say, whether in this body or not, my desire is to be pleasing to God. You know, and there are some things we can only do in this body. Did you know that? If we don't do it now, we're never going to get to do it. When we get to heaven, you won't be sharing your faith. Amen? Everybody's going to be saved. It's over. Okay, so it's too late now. So when do we have to do that? Now. We're in this body. It's time to do it now. I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord while walking around with this skin on my bones. Some things we can only do in this body. Witness to the lost. How about prayer and intercession for others? Living lives well-pleasing to the Lord. What are the seven words we all should long to hear? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know what? That's... The ultimate graduation. Amen? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. May we live lives pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, make this real clear. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. This is not written to unbelievers. So he's not talking about the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 where unbelievers will stand before God, their sin will be revealed, and they will be without excuse. And all those who rejected the Lord for their entire lifetime and said, I don't need you, I don't need you, I don't need you, I can go my own way, I got my own path, they're going to get their own desire, ultimately. This is the Bema Seat judgment. And what this is, is where believers come before Almighty God, and much like at the Olympics, Back in those days, those who ran in the competition would come forward and they would be given rewards. These, these laurel wreaths would be placed upon their head. These guys would work for years. They'd put their bodies in subjection and bust their tail to get you know, a bunch of branches put on their head. And Paul said, you know what? These guys strive for a perishable crown, but I want to live my life for one that's imperishable. I want to invest in one that's going to outlast this life, one that's going to last for eternity. But do you know that we're, when we stand before God, that and I'm blown away by this, this is just how gracious is our God? He saves us. He pays the price we can't pay. He loves us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Then He gives us gifts. And then if we use the gifts He's given us, He gives us rewards. What a great God we serve, amen? amen. He gives it all to us and then says, okay, you were obedient to use everything I gave you and that I equipped you to use, and now I'm going to bless you some more for it. And you know what? I think it's tragic that we would get to heaven, and we'd have a saved soul and a wasted life, that we'd be born again, but as by fire. We would not have an impact on the world around us. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I, you know, I have to confess, there's a part of me that says, Look, if I'm in heaven, I'm ha- that's good, right? Just get me there. I, don't, I, don't, I can have the little house. It's all right. Just get me in the, get me in the neighborhood, right? But I believe that if God says we should desire it, it'll be something that we will have desired when we get to heaven. We will have wanted to live our life in a greater way for God. And we will stand before Him. And He will reward us. And that absolutely blows me away. Again, the Bible tells us in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not do your works to be seen by men. If you do, you have your reward. We should be doing what we do for the Lord. Now, I want to make this clear again. Just so when nobody misses it. This is not works-based salvation. It's not faith plus works or faith or works. It's faith that works. Amen? Amen? It's not the works that save us. If we could get to heaven by our good works, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. But if we've truly been born again, the works will be an outpouring of a transformed life. So he's not going to bring us forward and say, okay, you did this many good things and this many bad things. All right, uh, way the scale. Okay, you're in, Right? You've heard me say it many times. God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades at the cross. Amen? And it's at the cross, it's what we've done with Jesus Christ, that will determine our eternity. That is the ultimate key. Verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well-known in your consciences. Now, the terror, the fear of the Lord. You know, one of the things I wrote down in my notes... About the fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have no fear of God, you're going to live without any thoughts of God. But can I tell you what the fear of of the Lord is in my life? It's not that I'm afraid that He might hurt me, but I'm afraid that I might hurt Him. That's my heart. Lord, I don't, Lord, I want to serve you completely. Not kind of, all the way, Lord. I want to give you my life completely. Lord, not I surrender some, I surrender all. Amen? Amen. And the terror of it, the fear of the Lord, the fear of that future judgment, what does it do? It causes them to persuade men. What do they do? Because they realize that there are going to be people standing before Almighty God, and they're so brokenhearted over the lost that they'll do anything they have to do, including being considered a Jesus freak. That's a compliment, by the way. Amen? Amen? Who better to be identified with than the Lord? I've been called that before. I ca- really? Oh, praise the Lord. That's good. Amen? What are you, some kind of Jesus freak? Well, yeah. Amen. What are you, a religious fanatic? Uh, well, yeah. Amen. Right? People are fanatics for the, for the 49ers, and that's really sad these days. Right? And people are just f- fanatics for football, fanatics for this. You know, and you, you've heard me say it. You know, a fanatic is somebody who you can't change his mind. He won't change the subject. Right? The guy just keeps, he's just relentless. And what he believes. And may we be like that. May we be so sold out for God. We just don't worry about what the world has to say. We're more concerned about being obedient to God. So it's not our salvation that's based on these works. But the fear of the Lord that's within us. Then what does it do? It transforms our priorities. It changes what we realize is important. It changes where our passions are placed. So the power of redemption. We have a heavenly priority. A desire to live a life pleasing to God in anticipation of heavenly judgment and a passion to persuade the lost. Now, verse 12 through 16, that this power of redemption also gives us a heavenly passion. Look what it says in verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. You know what? False teachers often commend themselves. Paul said, I'm not going to commend myself. Paul said, my focus is on heaven. I'm not worried about winning a popularity contest with men. I'm not trying to draw a crowd. I'm trying to disciple people. Amen? That's our passion here at Calvary Chapel, by the way. I'd rather disciple 50 than entertain 5,000. So we're just going to teach the Bible and love you guys supernaturally and have you be the best-fed, most-loved sheep in town. And you know what? Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. But it's not, we're not going to do things just to draw a crowd. Both of the clowns not going to be here. The Flying Walendas aren't coming anytime soon. We're not doing that. We're not going to do Pack-a-Pew Tuesday or anything you, know, you know what we're going to do? We're going to love you guys, teach you the word, have your lives transformed, and you can become contagious. That's what happens. Amen? And so we see here that Paul's whole heart was, look, I'm not going to promote myself, I'm not going to, you know what, if if you want to boast in me, great, but I'm not going to say a word, and these other people, they love to boast in themselves, you've heard me say it before, you see a sign with the worldwide ministry of, and someone's name underneath it, run, because we're to touch not the glory, it's not about the pastor, it's not about the church, it's about the Savior, Amen? amen, Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church, not me. I'm his assistant, I'm his servant, and I'm your servant. And Paul said, look, I'm, I don't want anybody looking at me. I'm not trying to promote myself in any way. I'm promoting him. And you know what? Th- these others, they, they want that, those accolades from men. They want people to look at them and say how wonderful and how great they are. Let others boast on their behalf. Others boasted on how they appeared before men. He would not fall into that trap, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves it is for God, and if we are sound mind, it is for you, the word beside ourselves literally means like talking to yourself, and if you've been on the mall, you've seen this, right? Well, I think we ought to go here for lunch, well, I think, we ought to, I think right? you're beside yourself, you're talking to yourself, you're out of your mind, right? And he says, hey, if we're out of our minds, we're out of our minds for God, if we're out of our mind, if you think we've lost it, we've lost it for God, it's okay, Because I'm going to be beside myself for the Lord. You know, Isaiah was sawn in two, you know that? He was really beside himself, right? But I mean, we can be beside ourselves for God. We can be bold for the Lord. And if if people in the world thinks we're out of our minds, it's okay. It's okay. Be faithful to God, not popular with men. Great passion for God and great simplicity for man. That's what it says there. Look what it says. If we're beside ourselves, if we have great passion, it's for God. If we have great simplicity, it's for you. I think we need to learn from that. Too often we have great simplicity for God and great passion for men. We need to have great passion for God and a greater simplicity in reaching out to those around us that need to know the Lord. Amen? Give them that simple, true message of salvation. If my answers are clear and understandable, it's for you. Verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus... That if one died for all, then all died. For the love of God compels us. Whenever Paul talked about the love of God, look it up. He was always talking about the cross. Always. What's the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind? Jesus Christ came and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. We're going to talk about that as we get to the end of the text. But he took all of your sin upon himself. He that knew no sin, as we're going to see in verse 21, became sin for us. And he says it's the love of God that compels, the love of Christ that compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Now what does that mean? The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. So the love of God compelled them, it motivated them, it made them shed their hearts abroad. Now, what does it mean if one died for all, then all died? What he's saying is that all were spiritually dead. Every single person who's ever been born was born spiritually dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. Every single person. If you came here today and didn't know it, you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? Amen. All of us. All have sinned. and all means all. And you're part of all. Amen? And so we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And if He died, it's because all died. All were dead. All were separated. All were spiritually apart from Almighty God. And He died to restore sinful man back to Holy God. That's why Jesus came. The word religion, relingara, means to relink. It's relinking sinful man back to Holy God. And that's why Jesus came. I don't like the word religion today. How about you? I don't like it. I know what it means and I like what it means, but I don't like what it's come to mean. Are you religious? No, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, amen? I know him. He's my best friend. I don't just go in a building and do the, you know, genuflect thing and then go home. I have a relationship with the Lord, amen? I know him in an intimate and a personal way. You who are made alive were dead because of your trespasses and sins. All natural men are spiritually dead and separated from God. Jesus said, if you live and believe in me, you will never die. Again, you read in the paper, I died. It's a lie. I didn't die, I moved. Much better neighborhood. I won't need any boxes or anything. Just go. I told my wife, she probably won't do it. I told her if I die before her, put me in a hefty bag, leave me on the curb. It's all good. <laughs> Just forget it. Why? Because I moved, right? It's, well, maybe a U Haul box would be more appropriate, right? I moved. Just put me out on the curb and be done with it, right? So physical death separates, us from, separates your body from the Lord. I mean, when we're walking in it, it's physical bodies. But physical death, what does it do? It is nothing to fear. It separates us from this body that's falling apart. Praise God that when we die, we leave this body, and now we can be in the presence of the Lord. So physical death, separation from your body, is nothing to fear. But spiritual death, separation from God, that is a fearful thing. Amen? And because all died, because all were sinful, Jesus died for all because all were dead in their trespasses and sins. Verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The power of redemption should produce lives that live for the Lord and not ourselves. The physical life, the flesh, lives for itself. The spiritual life lives for God. Old life, flesh, is centered around me. I'm living to satisfy my wants, my needs, my desires. By the way, the Bible teaches this very clear principle that your flesh will never be satisfied. Amen? Your flesh will always tell you, a little bit more and that will be enough. Liar, right? It's the biggest liar ever, right? Your flesh. Come on, feed, feed, feed. The more you feed your flesh, the hungrier it gets. And so we need to starve the flesh. We need to put our flesh to death, die daily to ourselves, and be filled instead with the Spirit of the living God with a focus on Him. The old life is surrendered around me. The new life, the spiritual life, is centered around God, living to bring glory and honor to His name, to please Him. The life of the flesh produces a mind of the flesh. And again, our thoughts are only of the flesh. What to eat, what to wear, how to satisfy it. In the Spirit, our thoughts are of God. My love for Him, His love for me. How often do you think about how much God loves you? You know what? I told you guys this a few months ago. I tell people that every day. I'm a pastor, I'm counseling people, I'm on the phone. I was driving down the road one day and I pulled off the side road and I was weeping just because God was telling me, I love you too, Dave. I need to remind you. Oh, I was undone. We need to be reminded daily how much the Lord loves us, amen? And then when he gives direction to our life, remember, it's from a loving Heavenly Father who's directing us. Not a no fun bummer God, but a loving Heavenly Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, amen? And he loves us so very much, What a great and awesome God that we serve. Not just knowing about God, but knowing Him intimately. Again, living for Him because He died for them and He rose again. And there's the tiebreaker with all other, quote, gods in this world. Amen? He rose again. Muhammad, dead. Right? Joseph Smith, Mormon Church, dead. Charles Taze Russell, dead. Mary Baker Eddy, dead. Jesus Christ, risen and living Savior who triumphed over sin and death. Amen? Without the resurrection, we could just go home right now. It's our chanting to the trees like the other half of Santa Cruz, right? But no, we're not going to do that. Because we know the risen and living Savior. And He is the true and living God. And besides Him, there is no other. And praise the Lord that we can know Him in an intimate and personal way. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, But now know Him thus no longer. You know what? born again, have no regard for the flesh, no regard for others according to the flesh. Now, how is it they have known Christ according to the flesh? Who's writing this letter? Saul. Paul. He was Saul. He became Paul. We'll talk about that in just a second. But what's interesting is he knew about the Lord prior to his death on the cross. And then after Jesus died on the cross, he became the greatest persecutor of the church. And we're going to talk about that in the next verse. But he viewed that Jesus that he knew in the flesh, the Jesus that he knew physically, as being one who was the leader of a religious sect that led people away from the true and living God. Today, unbelievers have a fleshly view of Christ. Most people believe that Jesus lived. Most people will not argue with that. But they'll make the statement, oh, he was a good man. He was a lot more than that. They'll say that, oh, maybe he's an example I can follow. He's a lot more than that. Others, he's just in a real, an irrelevant, ancient character from past days. but you know what? Jesus Christ alone is God, and he alone is the path to salvation, and he alone is the one who came and suffered and died to redeem us, to give it, to restore us back to holy God. Praise God. Amen. Him alone be the glory and the honor and the praise. And to Paul, after the power of redemption? He came to know Jesus in a different way, didn't he? He now saw him as the true and living God, his Lord, his Savior, his God and King, the Redeemer of his soul. Who is Jesus to you this morning? A heavenly perspective? Are you longing for heaven? Is he somebody that you can't wait to see face to face? Or is he an ancient character that you don't know a whole lot about? It's not good enough to know about Jesus. We need to know him personally. So not only... Do we have a heavenly perspective because we've been redeemed and purchased back? A heavenly priority and a heavenly passion, but we've gone through a heavenly transformation. We are new creations in Christ. We've been reconciled to God, and we are ambassadors for God. Let's read verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, one of the traps we fall into in the church today is we think some people are beyond saving. And we start to think that certain sins are worse than others. And while the consequences of those sins may be, all sin is separation from God. Amen? And all sin needs to be forgiven. And all sin needs to be repented of. And too often we look at a certain sin and we'll say, oh, that person's beyond repair. That person can never get saved. Well, I want to give you a few examples in just a moment, but, you know, the world doesn't get it. They think transformation comes through 12 steps or years of therapy dealing with my issues, but guess what, guys? It's a one-step program. It's a one-step program. It's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. It's coming to know Him in an intimate and a personal way. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. We're saved by Him and through Him alone, and when we Come to the Lord in that one step. We become new creations. He radically transforms us. We're no longer the person we used to be. The old person we used to be dies and passes away. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't hide the frailties of its heroes. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the whole Bible's not just Daniel? No recorded sin of that guy going in lion's dens, you know, purpose in his heart when he's a teenager. And we know he's a sinner because all men are, but if every book was Daniel, we'd just be like, oh, I can, you're right, wouldn't we? But you know what, I want to share with you, I'm going to take a few minutes, I want to share with you six examples quickly of people whose lives have been transformed. I'm going to talk about three people out of the Bible, and I'm going to talk about three people who are alive today. And I want to talk to you about the fact that, again, our God is in the business of radically transforming lives, amen? And nobody is beyond salvation, And nobody should we look at self-righteous and holier than thou because we think their sin was greater than ours before we were born again. We are just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. It's there before the grace of God go I. The first person I want to talk about briefly is Saul. Saul of Tarsus was the most hated man or feared man, whichever way you want to look at it, amongst Christians. What he meant for evil, God used for good. He started chasing the Christians. What did they do? They spread out all over the world and started preaching Jesus, so he was, he was promoting the gospel even before he got saved. Didn't even know it, right? Saul of Tarsus was a zealous man. Saul of Tarsus was a man who believed he was doing God's work by going after Christians, you know, capturing them, probably feeding them to lions. He was holding coats while Stephen was being stoned. This was a guy that if you asked every Christian on the planet, who's the last guy that'll ever get saved? They'd probably all say Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Now, we know what happened to Saul. God brought him to the end of himself. Every person who gets saved comes to the end of himself one way or another. And Paul was riding on his horse, on his high horse, and got knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, right? Ended up flat on the ground, blind, and said, Lord, who are you? And Jesus spoke to him. And guess what happened? It wasn't a 12-step program. There was no psychologist who ran up alongside to deal with his issues and baggage from the past. None of that happened, amen? Amen. What happened? New creation in Christ, right there. Why? Because he had a head-on collision with Jesus. And you know what? Even afterward, he told, the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, I want you to go and minister to Saul. And he goes, but Lord, that's the guy. Oh, he's blind? Really? You know, let me get a club, right? Stephen was my friend. You know, how about, you know, this for Stephen, you know, right? But that's not what the Lord told. The Lord said, I want you to go, and I want you to minister to him. And I want you to, you know, he's a new creation in me. And Paul spent several years studying the word and growing in his faith, and he went from being the most feared man to arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Aren't we glad that the apostles of that day didn't just write him off because of his current sin? May we never do that, amen? May we never look at somebody and write them off because of their sinful past. We're all sinners saved by grace, and Saul was a man that was used mightily by God there was another person the woman at the well John chapter 4 the Samaritan woman this woman had been married five times was now living with the man her life was so immoral that other women wouldn't come out to fetch water with her she had to go out in the noonday sun in the heat of the day because nobody else wanted to be near her and guess who showed up to talk to her Jesus did And when he spoke to her, he told her all about who she was. He told her all about her life. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I guess so, when he told her all about her life. And then he said to her, go and tell everybody. He he said, give me a drink. He said, if you'd ask me for a drink, I'd give you living water. You'd never thirst again. And this woman, having this conversation with Jesus, was radically changed on the spot became a new creation in Christ, went from an immoral woman who was afraid of, to talk to anybody because of her past and her lifestyle to someone who was a bold witness for the Lord. She ran back into Samaria. The apostles were in Samaria getting food and came out with no one. The Samaritan woman went in and came out with the whole city to meet Jesus. That's a new creation in Christ, amen? And are we glad that they didn't look at her and go, oh, you've been married five times, you are living with some guy, forget it. You're beyond saving. That's not our God. And she was a new creation in Christ. Another woman from the Bible, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute who was possessed by seven demons. And then she met Jesus. She was a woman that was as vile as most people would think, a woman that nobody wanted him to do with, a woman whose life was seemingly a disaster and had no hope. And then she met Jesus. And what happened? She became one of the most mighty women of God. Who was the first person Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead? Mary Magdalene. Who was there at the cross weeping for him? Mary Magdalene. Why? Because he that's been forgiven much or she that's been forgiven much loves much. Our God is in the business of radical transformation. Amen? And we should never prejudge somebody. We should never look at somebody's past and think they're beyond saving. We should never look at somebody's past and say, oh, that person can never be used by God because you know what? If that were true, none of us could be used by God. None of us. Now, I want to give you three exa- more examples of people living today. If you're new to the Calvary Chapel movement, or maybe you've never been here before, there's a book called Harvest. I know we've got it in the bookstore. I think we've got it in the lending library. And it's a book that basically talks about how the Calvary Chapel movement started. And you might read it and never come back to our church, so that's okay, right? If you're judgmental, you won't. Why? Because you know how the Calvary Chapel movement started? It was called the Jesus Movement in the late 60s. And it started with a man who had a passion and desire to reach out to those that nobody else wanted to minister to, the hippies. And Chuck Smith started reaching out to them and ministering to them. Well, guess what? Hippies started getting saved. And now there's a bunch of ex-hippies who are pastoring Calvary chapels all over the country. It's a fact. Now, what's interesting is I just read the book about the life story of a man by the name of Jeff Johnson. Jeff Johnson is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Downey. And when Jeff Johnson got saved, before he got saved, he was into transcendental meditation and taking LSD and sitting out on the beach and seeing lights. I saw God in the lights. You know, you take drugs, you see a whole lot of lights, it ain't God. Amen? It's not God. Right? It's not God. And you know what, though? God brought that man who was into drugs, whose life was a disaster, and he became a new creation in Christ. And he started a church that, that exploded immediately. And now he pastors a church of over 15,000 people in Southern California. Our God can take anybody in any circumstances, transform their life, and use them mightily. Amen? Another man is a man, the, the movie we're going to watch tonight, and this is the reason we're going to watch it, is a man by the name of Raul Reese. How many of you have ever heard of him? Okay, Raul Rees is a man who was a violent troublemaker like no other. We're going to see the movie tonight. I want to encourage you, if you're not doing anything at 5, come and watch it. It'll encourage you. It will be a blessing to you. But Raw was a man who was violent. He was so mean in high school. He was always getting in fights. Then, what do you give an angry guy that makes it worse? You have him go take Kung Fu. He ended up being one of the three, only three at the time grandmasters living on the planet. So you got an angry guy who's a martial arts expert. That's not a good combination. So he just starts beating up everybody. Eventually, he takes a guy on a challenge and kicks him or throws him through a plate glass window. He ends up in front of a judge who says, okay, you got two choices, prison or the military. So he goes into the military. While he's in the military, he's, he's a killing machine in Vietnam. And he just loses his mind. And finally, one day, he just pops a cap and he goes up to, the, to the, his commanding officer and puts a rifle at his head and says, if you send me out there one more time, I'm going to blow your head off. You know, your commanding officer tends to not respond too well to that. So they put him in a mental institution and left him there to work on his anger, and eventually they let him out of the mental mental institution, and he convinced this Christian girl to marry him. Now, that ought to be a warning to all you Christian girls. (laughs) Know the guy a while, all right? Make sure he loves God more than you do. Don't just, oh, he's Rico Suave, good looking. Don't be falling for that all right and so what happens is she marries him and it's not long after they're married that he starts beating her up he's and again grandmaster in kung fu beating the tar out of his wife he then opens a kung fu studio and starts sleeping with all the women that are his students but yet tells his wife if you ever leave me i'm going to kill you and he meant it well eventually he's out on one of these flings at a hotel he calls home and finds out that his wife's not there And he gets wind that she's packed up her stuff and she's planning on leaving. He comes home, he loads a shotgun and starts thrashing the house. He's waiting for her to come home and when she walks in the door, he's going to kill her and their children. He's out of his mind. This guy's beyond saving, right? This is a guy that God could never use. And you know what I love? Is he came to the end of himself and here's how he did it. He took the revolver that was in his hand and he slammed it against stuff and he hit the TV. And when he hit the TV button, the screen came on, and it was Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa on TV. <laughs> You're going to see it in the movie, I'm telling So Rawls sitting there with a shotgun in his hand, waiting to kill his wife, listening to Chuck Smith, and guess what happens? He gets saved, and he's a new creation in Christ. And now his wife comes home, and he tells her he's born again, and she's like, I don't think so, right? <laughs> I'm not believing you. And it took some time for people to buy it. It took some time for people to believe it. Well, guess what? Raul Reese is pastoring one of the largest churches in the United States in Southern California right now. And he's one of my favorite Bible teachers on this planet. And you know what's amazing? The guy can barely speak English. You know what, man? It's really heavy, man. Check it out. That's it right there. But you know what? I love it. Because what does that tell us? That God can do great and awesome things. You know what? The people that know Raul today would never have believed his past. The people that know Mary Magdalene at the end of her life would have never believed her past. The people that knew the woman at the well later would have never believed her past. The people that knew the Apostle Paul after his life was transformed would never have believed the past. Ever. Well, lastly, I'm going to share about something that hits a little closer to home and God help me. In about a week, there's going to be an article coming out in the San Jose Mercury about the power of redemption in the life of one of our own pastors. Many of you know this story already. Some of you do not. For those of you who know him, it will be hard for you to believe what I'm about to tell you. It was his heart that you would know. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17 to the max. It will be hard for you to believe it. And it's hard for me to believe it. About 15 years ago, Pastor Bill, before Pastor Bill became a Christian, before he met his wife, Michelle, he committed a criminal sexual act involving a minor. The crime remained a secret for about seven years. Until, as it usually is with sin, it came to light. Charges were going to be filed. Bill came to the end of himself. He broke down in his office. He called his wife and confessed his crime. As he relates to me on his drive home, no less than four or five times, he contemplated suicide just driving off the road. But like Saul of Tarsus, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene, Jeff Johnson, and Raul Reese, God was not ready to give up on Pastor Bill. And seeking comfort and wisdom and no doubt forgiveness, Bill and Michelle decided to start going to church. They'd heard a pastor on TV or on radio by the name of Don McClure. They ended up at Calvary Chapel, San Jose. Their second week there, they attended a new believer's class. After service, they met with the pastor. Bill didn't think he was going to say anything, but sitting across from this pastor, hearing about the love of God, he was broken, and he confessed his sin completely. Right there on the spot, he and Michelle gave their lives to Jesus Christ, and they were born again. In the midst of the greatest trials we're brought to the end of ourselves, and it's an opportunity to know God. Now a born-again new creation in Christ, Bill chose not to fight the charges, but instead, because he realized what he had done was wrong, he was broken over his sin, he confessed. He didn't go to court, he didn't try to get out of it, he confessed. Because of that, he was sentenced to three years in prison, of which he served about two. During his time in prison, he wasn't angry and bitter, but broken, repentant, and hungry for God. He spent his time in prison, what we call in the office, at Folsom Bible College. And during his time there, he read through the Bible numerous times. He studied God's Word. He read over 350 Christian books. His doctrine was firmly grounded and founded. And he he became a salt and light in that prison because he indeed was a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The person he used to be didn't exist anymore. He was a brand new creation in the Lord. And that's who he is today. And he came out of prison, spent three years on parole, for a short amount of time ascended, attended Calvary San Jose, then a startup church in Scotts Valley that later folded. Eventually, God led he and Michelle to Calvary Santa Cruz when we were first starting out. And they have both been great blessings to this church. Amen. 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 <laughs> New creations in Christ. I don't know of a and I'm gonna embarrass him, but I don't know of a greater servant than Pastor Bill. If I had to write down what I wanted in an assistant pastor, he would be it. He is the greatest encouragement to me. He he knows my heart better than I do. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't know the man that I described to you from 15 years ago because he doesn't exist. Pastor Bill is a new creation in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you've blown it so much in your past that God couldn't possibly use you. Can I encourage you with these six examples that we've just shared that God wants to use you, amen? And that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Our God is a great and an awesome God, a loving God, a merciful God, a forgiving God. And my heart would be that we would love each other enough that we could be transparent with each other with the struggles that we have. Amen? That we can pray for each other. That we wouldn't be the lone ranger in dealing with the sins of the past. You know what? We're forgiven. Forgiven. Tetalestai. It is finished. Amen? And praise the Lord. Last few verses. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's why Jesus came, to reconcile us back to the Father. And that's the ministry He's given us, to reach out to the world and reconcile them back to the Father. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why we exist. That's why we live and breathe. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That doesn't mean Christ is first in my life. It means he's first, he's tenth, he's one hundredth, and he's every number in between. Jesus Christ is my life. That's radical, isn't it? We need more radical Christians today, amen? Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's imploring them, be reconciled to God. I'm imploring you this morning, Be reconciled to God. You know what? Salvation doesn't take you getting better first. It doesn't take you trying harder first. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, and so what does it take to be saved? It's confessing that we are sinners. It's confessing that Jesus Christ alone is God. It's asking Him to not only be our our Savior, but our Lord. Not just give me the get out of hell free card, And let me put it in my wallet. But Lord, I give my life to you completely. I serve you completely. It's only through that work of the cross, your shed blood on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, that I can be saved. That is the message of reconciliation. That is the message that we are as ambassadors to Christ to share with the world that so desperately needs the Lord. Last verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For there to be a powerful redemption for there to be the power of redemption in our life there had to be a heavenly sacrifice and it says there he who knew no sin became sin for us that means the sin of all mankind was placed upon the lord and that is why while hanging upon the cross when the sin of all mankind was placed upon him the shock to his physical body because he was 100 man and 100 god that he cried out my god my god why have thou forsaken me Why? Because he was separated from the Father for that moment to take all of your sin and my sin upon himself. Nobody else could do that. Nobody else would do that. Only Jesus Christ did do that. Amen? And he loves us. And that's his heart, that we would be restored. No wonder he cried out. So what is the one sin that's unforgivable? What's the one sin that cannot be forgiven? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or rejecting the cross. Rejecting... The universal offering of salvation. He offers salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. He will never force anybody to be saved, but he'll reach out to every one of us and say, here's the gift of salvation, now you must take it. The only sin that will keep us out of heaven is that one. Because any other sin can be forgiven, but that one will not be. When we reject the cross and say, Lord, I don't need you, Lord, I don't want you, Lord, I have no desire to follow you, eventually he will give us what we want. He will never force salvation on us. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you've been coming for a while. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. You know what? That salvation gift's being offered to everybody right now. It doesn't matter what sin's in your past. You can be a new creation in Christ before you get up out of that chair. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I just lift up anybody here who does not know you. And Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts to their need for you. Lord, I pray, Father, that, Lord, they would realize your love and your grace and your mercy. But Lord, that first they would realize their own sin, their own separation from you, their own desperate need for you. And Father, I pray that in that state they would realize that there's a God who loves them, a God who's willing to forgive them, but they must come to the end of themselves like all the examples we saw today, and cry out to you. Real quickly, if you're here today, else, Christians just be praying, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you're invited by a friend, you're here by divine appointment, nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. The Bible says today's a day of salvation. We're all sinners, we know it. We either we're going to pay for our sin or we'll let him. If it's your desire to give your life to the Lord, to be a new creation in Christ, To know that transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life before you leave here. I'm going to ask you to do something real simple. Just raise your hand so I can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? Today's the day of salvation. Anybody here at all? The Lord loves you guys. He desires to restore sinful man back to holy God. Is there anybody? Lord, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord. And I do pray also for the believers who are here today who maybe their walk has been struggling, or maybe they feel like they're away from you, Lord, that you bring restoration in their lives as well. Father, you're a great and awesome God. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't come for the righteous, but for the ungodly. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you for the work you've done in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.